Welcome to Let's Talk Ideas. I'm Paul Taylor, and this is a podcast where you'll find us looking outside the world of Bromford and discussing big ideas with fascinating people. I'm joined on the Bromford side for this episode by Helen Swinnerton, a business partner for our people team, senior business partner, I should say, HR business partner. So we've got a HR person in the room, so we'll have to be careful. And as ever, by producer Katie. Uh, today, we have an old friend returning, Ian Wright. Ian is the founder and chief executive of the Disruptive Innovators Network. DIN, for short, a membership organisation designed to be an active hub for social housing organisations actively engaged in disruptive innovation. Their mission is to enable members to make a sense of disruption, be more innovative and grab the opportunities to maximise their social impact and build back better. By channeling activities through the themes of technology, leadership and culture, their objective is to help leaders work collaboratively, learn from each other and, and out-of-sector disruptors as well, particularly out-of-sector being important, and share the cost, risk, and impact of innovation. Welcome, Ian and Helen. Hello, Paul. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Paul. And uh, thanks for a very warm introduction as well. Well read, sir. So, so I'll start then, um, Ian, if that's okay. Um, and welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. This is my first one, so um, hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll get through to the end of it okay and unscathed. Can you start off by letting our listeners know who you are, um, the path that you've been through um, in, in life and how you've ended up founding DIN? And then also, what does disruption look like to you? Right, okay. Well, thanks. Uh, quite a wide-ranging uh, question there, Helen. I don't know how long we've got, but let me, let me start. Um, normally, when people ask, ask me the question, you know, what, what do you do? My, my sort of standard response is, I do my best. And I think that's something that I've sort of taken throughout my sort of career in terms of I've never really had a career path or a career sort of plan around that. I mean, very, very early stages. I started off in a local authority, um, ended up being a, a housing officer, did all of the jobs um, that go with the housing officer, had a great time actually learning the role of what um, social housing uh, actually is about, um, and did all of various different jobs, housing strategy, housing policy, area housing officer, you name it. But I suppose... I'm probably best known in the sector because it's come up for nearly 40 years uh, since I started working in the sector for running and scaling communities of interest. So I've run membership organizations for a large part of my career. And I suppose that fits with one of the things I enjoy to do, which is around connecting people, connecting interesting people, different leaders, because I just have this sort of real being in my bonnet about, you know, if we're all trying to solve the same problem, you know, why we're we not sort of working together more and sort of sharing the learning that we do. So... Um, I retired, I use that word uh, figuratively, um, uh, as um, uh, housemark, where I was deputy CEO there uh, about seven years ago this month now, and I didn't really have a plan other than I knew that actually innovation was something that could help social housing answer some of the questions that uh, the sector does have. Um, I read a, a publication by Professor Clayton Christensen uh, around the innovator's dilemma, and it just fascinated me, this, this whole new world um, of corporate innovation and I thought well I'll tell you what if I'm interested in it let's reach out let's see if there's other people that are out there uh, doing this sort of thing obviously Bromford and Paul and the team have, have led on this the you know the first and possibly still might not be the only innovation lab within the social housing sector and we set up a community um, back in 2018 and we've grown and we're now uh, over 100 uh, subscribers within the social housing space and probably what's interesting within that is that um, 90%, 95% of the stuff that we do is nothing to do with housing. 
And I think that's something that I've learned over the years that, you know, we suffer a little bit from what I call sort of uniqueness bias or we're different to everybody else and we're not. We're special. All my members are special uh, as long as they keep playing the subscriptions. But it's seriously, uh, you know, we, we are a business, a multi-million pound social business. Um, but, you know, all the rules and rules of business still apply to that. So, yeah. So after seven years of, uh, of doing that, this is where we are now. And I'd like to think, you know, we've created a really interesting, uh, inquisitive and curious community wanting to to be more innovative. And what does disruption look like to you? What does how does that how does that display itself? How does it display itself? Well, I mean, I think anything that comes along with this sort of threatens, uh, um, you know, how you operate, how your brain thinks, um, how you sort of go to work, what you think about. You think about it in your in your personal life. If something comes along, if there's a train strike or there's a you know a train that's being cancelled or something, you've got disruption. Uh, and working in business is, is no different to that uh, because you're part of an e ecosystem and those systems are constantly changing, lots of interconnecting nodes and um, activities going on that mean, you know, sometimes things don't go as smoothly. And I think it's it's one of the things I've learned over the last sort of few years. Organizations have spent a long time um, trying to get to a steady state and developing strategies for, you know, everything is going along nicely when actually they should have been doing the opposite. And designing strategies for disruption, uh, because I think that that's ultimately where we are and where we're going to remain. It's funny you say that about setting up Dinny, and because I remember it was shortly before you set it up, and you, I remember having a conversation with you over on the old couch at uh, Blomford Lab in the building just over the way from here, and you were talking about you know thinking about how you could galvanise the kind of sector around this kind of the way of working. And as you say, you know, not, not just the sector, but the associated sectors as well. So what's been your kind of main lessons learned over the past six, seven years? Oh, so, so many lessons, Paul. And I do remember that that conversation as well, because that helped sort of form some of my thinking about what we wanted to try and do. I think, um, first of all, it's hard running your own business, um, but it can be a huge amount of uh, fun as well uh, you get to meet some brilliant people and I've probably learned more in the last five years than I did in the previous couple of decades to be honest in terms of what businesses are there for how you run them how things sort of yeah, go awry within them but I suppose there's a there's a few things first of all um, that in social housing itself there is not really what you anything that you would call corporate innovation um uh, what i mean by that is actually corporate innovation is no different to a people department a finance department a marketing department there are methodologies systems and skills that you can acquire that can help you become more innovative but it needs to be done on a business basis a lot of people uh when you hear them talk about innovation you know you think it's sitting on some bean bags some posted notes a whiteboard couple of drones perhaps you know that sort of thing and actually it's not it's a skill and it's a skill that can be learned and taught um i i, I sort of always sort of makes me smile the amount of sort of you know there's lots of innovation awards out there and uh, there's lots of organizations who call themselves innovative uh, and i've now got some sort of little tests that uh, i i try and sort of look at just to just to you know see how deep this goes um, it might be, you know, well, what, tell me about the last experiment that you ran. What did you learn? You know, we haven't run any experiments. All right, okay, then, well, um, what about sort of, you know, ISO 56002? How's your accreditation going for that? Um, what's ISO 56002? 
um, around that. And, um, you know, you can sort of go on uh, around this, but I think, um, you know, as I say, there's a lot talked about this, a lot of innovation theatre that goes on. And, you know, when organisations are saying, you know, we're highly innovative, um, you know, just ask for the last six months of board papers, go through the just the agenda, that's the only page you need. And if innovation is not on as an agenda items, probably within the top four items on there, then you're probably talking rubbish and in terms of where innovation sits because it's not top of mind uh, around that. I think the other thing, and we've talked about this before, is uh, people and organisations' approach to failure and what a key part around that is. And, you know, we've heard various failures about, you know, phrases about, you know, you've got to fail fast or you've got to learn fast or all of these sort of things. I think it's a bit more nuanced than that. And one of the presentations I used to do in the early days was um, regulation doesn't kill innovation, good managers do. And what I mean by that is that the, the systems and the methodologies which are actually set up within organisations are designed that people have their RAG ratings, if you use a red, amber, green um, methodology, uh, to be in the green. Um, if you've got things in the green, then there's probably not a lot happening in the business because you're not learning around this. But that's often what people through performance appraisals, bonuses, whatever it actually might be, that's how you get rewarded. Uh, because you're keeping those things in the green. And I've seen lots of uh, people try to intervene uh, into businesses. And, you know, they come along and say, look, I can save you, you know, 10% of your cost on your Boyd's turnaround process, but you're going to be amber or red for nine months. Both mm. people would say, nah, I don't need to do that. Um, and, and that's where we sort of lose some of these sort of things. Um, I think the other thing as well is that, that People don't really understand what innovation is as a process within the organisation. We might understand, um, you know, treasury management strategies or people strategies and things like that. But um, housing does not, probably along with quite a few other sectors, does not really understand innovation. And if you think about the three three main phases of innovation are about ideation. And you've got some problems, right? Let's come up with some ideas to solve those problems. Well, probably okay. Lots of organisations will capture ideas you know, do something um, around very few will take those ideas and take them on the incubation stage, which is, right, let's see if this will work in a real world scenario uh, around this. And practically nobody, and I mean nobody in the sector, will then scale those ideas that do work. And and that's that's a real challenge for us as leaders. That That's really interesting. And I think the whole point you made about kind of being long term, because, you know, I, I look at and I think, you know, it's probably taken eight, nine years to properly embed innovation at the heart of a strategy. And going back to what you said earlier, that innovation theatre and the beanbags and the drones and all that, of which, of course, we've done that. We're probably <laughs> one of the first. That has value in one sense if you stick at it in the long term because you have to start somewhere and you have to start that period of exploration. But I think in a lot of organisations don't stick at it for the long term. As you said, they don't think at it like, like you think about an account, a finance team or a people team or whatever, those things are the, the top organizations that you sort of promote and visit. They are thinking long-term about it. Well, and innovation is not just for Christmas, Paul. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, if you invest in it uh, and you build the right system, you link it to your organizational strategy. Um, uh, you know, it can have a, a very, very big impact, but it's one of those things that, quite often, particularly times of austerity, it's one of the first things that gets cut because innovation, or quite often by its nature, is about the future. Uh, and I'm thinking about this. Um, and actually, if you can't get an immediate return, 
you know, you'll, you'll cut that back. I think one of the, the big challenges I have to, to my members and to the social housing sector as a whole is that you're a 30 billion pound a year sector in, in England. Um, you know, there's 1500 of you, um, that are registered around this, you know, why is it almost complete absence of any collaboration and any working together to solve these problems? Because you will all be working on the same problems, uh, around this. And it just surprises me that we've not sort of grasped that nettle. I think a lot of leaders are now in a position whereby certainly post pandemic, where they realize, um, we need to change, but we need some help with that out. And that's the phase that, 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 that we're sort of looking for. And I think the, the challenge that we've got certainly in 2024 and probably beyond is in my, my opinion, the new changes in England, uh, uh Alone, the new regulatory standards basically are the, probably the single biggest uh, change for a generation. And certainly, having lived through a lot of sort of different waves of intervention, uh, certainly more so than the Audit Commission back in the noughties kind of thing. And it's it's really interesting to see how the sector is going to respond to this. I call it we've moved from the age of um, innovation to the age of compliance, and I can already start to see this now that organisational resources. Um, and business is going to be into, right, okay, I don't want to downgrade it. I've got to do this. Um, and I think it's going to be really interesting because I put out a, a couple of sort of um, posts around, um, you know, when you move to an age of compliance, the organizational headspace reduces, so you can't spend that time on innovation. You are serving the regulator because I've got to do that because that's what I get measured on. That's what the board expects us to actually do. Whether people really like that and want to do that, that's a, that's a sort of separate issue around it. But I think what it does do is to say it removes that bandwidth. But what actually should increase the, cap- the the innovation appetite is the fact that we are in a period of austerity. Actually having less money should make you want to be more innovative because you have to. Right, absolutely. Yeah, you um, you talked about collaboration, um, uh, Ian, and I've been really lucky to attend one of your uh two-day sessions away looking at culture in other organizations i know that culture is one of the three uh, themes that they didn't focus on i attended one of your uh, wish i worked there um, events which was fantastic and really helpful in terms of connecting uh, a sector out of mouth out of sector colleagues to really think about what culture uh, meant to them and what was going well for them what was really interesting and in one of my biggest takeaways was as you said we're actually all dealing with very similar problems and issues um, and, and that was fantastic. You, you do host um, in organizations all across the world. What are the key things that you've picked up about building right culture and workspaces um, that you found from that? Um, firstly, that it's it's very hard work. Um, it's temporary in nature. Um, if you don't get these things uh, em- embedded, it takes time. And as Paul said, um, sometimes our patience runs out before things come to fruition. Um, uh, that organizational systems and methodologies and approaches probably have the biggest impact on organizational culture. Um, and I think that's why, I mean, one of the projects I'm looking at for this year is understanding the power of ecosystems um, and how they impact on how people work. Um, I've seen lots of examples, and as you said, we've been to visit and been inside lots of organizations. Um, and I think the things I've learned from that were uh, that actually you... You know, you are trying to solve very, very similar problems, whether it's about customer experience or on the social housing uh, perspective, tenants and residents experience around that, um, whether it's about sort of, you know, well-being and happiness at work. 
you know, and as I said, we've probably all been to say, gone through these different phases of, you know, well, let's get a pool table in or bar football or, or something like that. And actually, they're not really moved the dial. And when we've got record numbers of people who are going off uh, for well-being issues, then clearly there is something wrong with uh, how we are running these organisations. And I think, you know, in my time, uh, sort of, you know, well, I won't say employed, but working, um, I have, you know, the, the organisations I've liked are the ones where they've got a big sense of fun around what they do and get fun within the work that they do. And I think that comes across both with the customers, the service that people gets, uh, that get. And, and I think it's it's interesting, even in in this sort of day and age, you know, we still have to spend, or some organisations still waste money on customer service training, you know. If, if, if you have to spend time, money and effort training people to be nice to your tenants and residents, it's not a training issue, it's the recruitment issue. Yeah, no, no, I agree. Um, and, you know, in terms of, um, you know, my experience of, of, of attending one of those events with you and experiencing that, I think you're absolutely right. One of the focuses in Bromford um, through our Great Places to Work survey is that we, um, our colleagues have really asked us to think about what that sense of fun is is at work. And, and um, we'll, be, we'll be doing some work, you know, over the next 12 months to really think about that and bring that to life. Um, I think, you, you know, you talk about things like the pool table and the other things that, you know, on the face of it, feel a little bit gimmicky, but I think there are some that definitely still stick with colleagues as being important. I mean, one of the things that we've found is really valued colleagues is um, Bromford breakfasts um, and uh, just through cost of living and, and support for colleagues and, and colleagues also adjusting to kind of hybrid working um, and the work styles that we're, we're, we're adopting, um, that thinking about when they're coming into office spaces, what, what might be helpful or useful for, for them. Um, has been some of the things that have been um, really key for us. But I think I think you're right, they won't last long term and, and we really then need to think about the other things that are impacting on how people feel about coming into work and really doing their best. It sort of joins on to the next thing I wanted to ask you about because this is the second time that you've been on a Bromford podcast. The first time was in right at the beginning of the pandemic. It wasn't with me because I was lying in hospital at the time so I was seeing the uh, pandemic effect on the NHS from a very different perspective. Um, obviously, that disrupted the normal way of kind of doing business and working. It certainly disrupted how DIN were operating at that time. Generally, the effect in terms of like on the sector, that pandemic, do you think that did move the dial on innovation or have we reverted to business as usual? Good question. Uh, I think, firstly, from a DIN perspective, that was probably the my most nervous moment because we were literally... 18 months old and we were thinking a lot of our activities were experiential learning in person you know we had a whole program lined up and then suddenly overnight whoosh it was gone and but what surprised me was that actually moving what we did online actually the membership doubled almost overnight with organizations who wanted some help with how that goes so actually the pandemic was really really good for, for growing the network um, I think my observations during that time, and it seems like a, a distant memory now, but I think what was interesting from a housing perspective was some of the indicators that we, we took, you know, and, and, and measured. So tenant resident satisfaction went absolutely through the roof in those first six months. And it was interesting. I spent a lot of time talking to housing leaders. Why is this? I think it, it did two things. Firstly, it demonstrated that um, actually when you take the shackles off and you give people whose job it is to do, whether it's a trade operative, whether it's a housing officer, whether it's ASB and say, look, you know, you know what to do, go out there and do it. They did it. 
So the tenants got a better and a faster and a more responsive service to that. I think the second thing that it taught organizations was actually, you don't really need your landlord to do all of these things. The amount of micro communities that were set up through WhatsApp group or Facebook or things like that where communities looked after vulnerable people on their neighborhoods and estates themselves demonstrated you didn't need that. And I think one of the, uh, the landlord, one of the things that sort of came strongly for me was actually, you know, you, the landlord's role is not to say, you know, well, how can we help you do this? It's right. Okay. You're doing this yourself. How can we help you sustain this when you need to go back to work or when you need to? So, so I think those, those were a couple of things that really stuck in my mind. I think, um, to answer your question about, uh, is it, is it business? Businesses are always changing, right? Everything is changing. They're, they're like tectonic plates. Everything is sort of moving. And I think the alignment that social housing has got and the challenge that it's got now is that I was one of my members sort of used the phrase, um, it's gone from being uh, angels to demons. <clears throat> what I mean by this is social housing was seen as a solution to a particular problem. We were good. We were good people. Over the last three years, certainly, we've gone into the demonic category around this. And that is going to take four or five years at least, in my view, just to change that round. It might be a minority who are, uh, you know, leading the leading for um, uh, the scrutiny of us around this. But what it does do, it drowns out everybody else's good work. And believe me, social housing organizations do do a lot of good work. They employ people because of their purpose. However, it's all drowned out uh, about this. And I'm sure you've seen like me, lots of uh, media coverage or more just from the last sort of couple of weeks around this. And I think that those external forces are something we've got to have to be more mindful of. And this is where I come into one of those um, new skills I think leaders are going to have to have, which is the power of storytelling. You know, you can't put, you know, you can't put your newsletters out, your annual reports and things like that. Nobody reads them, right? Nobody reads them. Um, but you can, and people will listen to stories about impact and change and things that are relevant to them. And it's, again, it's a skill, I think, that a lot of leaders are going to have to learn. And um, I think that's one of the key things that is very, very different now. There are, we can have a conversation spread an hour just talking about what are, the, what are the skills that leaders are going to have to unlearn as much as what are the things that they're going to have to learn in the future. And there's about seven or eight things that I think leaders need to have that they're perhaps not even thinking about at this stage. Just hold that thought and drop a couple of those into me because Helen's going to ask you a question about leadership. But just going, and, and this is related to leadership as well because my experience from um, using the NHS services during the pandemic was exactly the same. The shackles were off. Some leaders got out of the way and they enabled certain things that weren't working to work much more effectively. And I think in one of the kind of mistakes that people often make with innovation is to think it's about adding more things when actually it's sometimes exactly the opposite. It's about taking things away and it's about moving moving that aside. So I think, you know, your thoughts about leadership are interesting. Yeah, and it does segue really nicely into the role that leaders um, will play in setting the right conditions for innovation. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Um, yeah, I, I suppose, you know, I'd come back and say, right, well, who is a leader? You know, who do people sort of see as a leader? When I, you know, I grew up in the council, you had a chief technical officer and you know, you had a very, very, you know, long hierarchy to sort of get there. That was the year I was brought in. I think with the merging of the generations coming into the workforce, that whole approach has now changed. And I was looking at some statistics recently about, you know, how long um, Gen Zs 
um, are, are actually, you know, want to stay in an organisation. And, you know, it's it's probably less than two years and they're going to want to sort of move and move on. And I wonder how many organisations are thinking about this sort of multiplicity of sort of workforce uh, within their business and how they need to communicate with them. Because the way I like to communicate is very different to what my son would like to sort of communicate as well. And that's going to have an impact on how we think as leaders. So I think a lot of the things we've probably learned over the last 20 years uh, particularly around leadership and management, actually, you could probably stop doing them and, and start afresh. Around, I genuinely do believe that because things have moved so so on so much. And let me explain what I mean by that. What the pandemic did, it really sorted out the excellent um, service providers from the really poor ones who really didn't care about the the uh, the services they provided. So we now have uh, a community at large, which includes tenants and residents, whose expectations now are bigger than what they were and are increasing faster than social housing organizations' ability to keep up. Okay, the Institute's customer service was um, their, their latest report as customer satisfaction at its lowest level since 2015. And more importantly, it's the downward trajectory that it's on because we have become less patient with services. So if you think during the pandemic, how many times was our lives saved where there was a knock at the door and Amazon knocked and there, there's something, you know, People thought we needed shops to go shopping until we realized we didn't. And that was a quote from uh, Anthony Slumbers, which really sort of stuck with me. I think to your question about leadership, we've got to get people who are more curious um, around him. I've got, I think we've got to uh, move from playing a game of inches to playing a game of miles. What I mean by that, that is currently a lot of leaders are down in the weeds trying to solve the problems, whether it's aerated concrete, whether it's damp and mold service failures in that space when actually the role of the leader uh, is to work on the business and you've got to be thinking about the future one of the questions i always sort of ask boards and exec teams is uh, are you being a good ancestor so are the decisions that you're taking today will you're yet to be born with future future grandchildren thank you for that but because i don't know if you, you've noticed but uh it's an increasing trend where we departing leaders of organizations will go new person will come in and suddenly there's an organizational downgrade or there's this whole plethora of things that come to the surface that were always there. And I, I asked a question uh, just yesterday about does, uh, does, does social housing, is there a, uh, a rise moment in the social housing sector that we just haven't found yet? Because it could well be there because we simply don't know because we either don't ask the questions or we don't carry out the research to help us answer them. Uh, and, but I think that does raise so many questions, Ian, as you say, about leadership, um, ways of working, but also technology as well. And I want to move on to ask you that question because Gene has featured some amazing emerging technology, some of which has broken through to the mainstream, some of which hasn't uh, broken through at this point in time that could change the way we completely run our organisations. What do you think are the things to watch out for in the technology space over the next couple of years? Right, okay. I'm, I'm worried answering these questions, Paul, because I think in the early stages, you know, I was on a platform, um, you know, yelling about blockchain. Blockchain is going to sort out all of your transparency around transaction. This is back in 2018, and where is it now kind of thing. And I think that I, I'm naturally curious, but also cautious about technology. But let me pick up probably one of the biggest ones that everybody talked about back in the last year. And um, uh, and that's around artificial intelligence and its role within uh, social housing. I am sure this will 
start have a role. We've had an AI group for the last three years. Um, well, it's been really interesting to see, you know, the conversations. But now that it's going mainstream, it will start to have an impact around some of these things. And I'll share a couple of examples with you. Um, AI will only really, really be um, of value um, once you are able to unleash your own data on it so that it can give you something specific about your organization. And that's where you have problem number one, because if you are not fully um, uh, happy with the quality of the data that you're going to feed to this, you will end up with uh, what DIN's formula for artificial intelligence is, and exclude, excuse the fruity language, but the formula is AI plus BSD equals AS, and that stands for artificial intelligence plus bullshit data equals artificial stupidity. And I think we're going to see a bit of that sort of come through. Um, I think the best career thing you can sort of think about if you're already employing and training people within the sector is a prompt engineer. Um, there are loads of crib sheets out there. You've got to be able to ask um, the artificial intelligence the right questions in the right format to get the answers that you want. Uh, and that's a journey. But again, it's something I think young people you know, are already there uh, at, with, with us. Um, I think the uh, to... Regardless of the technology, we need to improve the digital literacy of leaders, particularly the executive teams. I say to my members, you cannot say to me, I am not a techie anymore. Um, you can't use that, but you've got to get yourself up to speed. This is what leaders are going to require around it. Um, I think robotics are going to be coming in um, very, very strong uh, as well. You know, particularly as we've got a workforce crisis, how do we automate some of these sort of things? Um, we've got a, a visit to the National Robotarium in Edinburgh uh, later on this year, looking at different deployments of robots and what they're going to do. But it'll probably still be a few years before we sort of get to that space. But I think, in my experience, most of the technology we will use this year has been around for a long time. Most of the technology already has. So it's been well proven. We just haven't found the uh, the, the use cases or how to sort of deploy it. And that's where I would highly encourage organizations, you know, to try it, to experiment or you know, collaborate with other organizations and say, well, look, you try this bit out, you try this bit out. You know, I mean, you know, we, talk, we joked about the drone stuff before, Paul. It's almost, almost going mainstream now in terms of how organizations use that. You know, it's just took that time. I think, the, you know, the big things that we're going to have to think about as well is how do we make our homes go from dumb assets to smart ones? So our home's going to have to talk to us um, because at this moment in time, most house organizations don't have a scooby-doo what is going on inside their properties, right? Um, and I, if I, as a leader, I would not want to be in that position. And I think, um, you know, the, the question of, you know, if I was a leader, I'd be sitting down and say, right, what, what price is peace of mind? Like, what do I have to pay or what do I have to invest to have peace of mind that allows me to sleep at night? I think as well, though, and I picked this up from, I think it was a visit that uh, one of our colleagues to a dinner event was saying, you know, you know, every car that rolls up to the production line now pretty much has got a digital twin of it, but we're still building homes, you know, with, with, with no copy of it. Um, and some of the points that you made absolutely as well about the, the, the internal capabilities, the, the leadership, you know, the, the, the skills in understanding. We've had to, you know, invest a lot and rethink a lot, Hannah, haven't we, about kind of how we think about IT, how we think about data science and about building some of those capabilities internally. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 um, you know, starting that journey for us um, is is tricky because we don't exactly know um, what we want to do with it, how we can best use it, um, but we do want to get on the um, 
we do want to get on the wagon and start and start thinking about how we can use it. So, um, yeah, absolutely, it's skills that we've um, we've been looking for, and we we have managed to uh, start building some of that capability, and and specifically through some of our grad roles as well, haven't we? Ian's mentioned about you know collaboration, and that's something that I just do think I still go on. And we're going on about ten years ago. That I don't think the sector's embraced enough. You know, there's loads of people out there with bright ideas. There's loads of universities we should be partnering with, as well as you said, Ian, about sharing things with each other. Um, final, well, nearly final question, I think it will be. If we granted Ian Wright's supreme, omnipotent, Thanos-like powers over all the housing association sector, or even the social sector, it's not going to be a housing association, what would you change about them? And you can make this as profound or as petty as you like, or one of each. <laughs> Well, in, in my head, uh, Paul, I've had those powers for years, which probably is the reason why I'm unemployable now uh, around it. I suppose that there's, a, there's a couple of things. And as I say, we built the DIN business around sort of, you know, the three Fs. And the first F was, was fun. And I think everything we sort of take a look at, you know, quite right, we challenge why we're sort of doing those things. And I think to pick up that collaboration point but let, is, is really important. But let me bring this back to... But probably one of the things that I see happen the least where the words don't match the actions, which is tenants and residents are at the heart of what we do. And I see this, you know, tenants and residents are quite absent in in, in a lot of the activities that, that we actually sort of do. And I was sort of um, talking on with colleagues about, well, you know, if we took our sort of, you know, exec teams and chief execs away, you know, what sort of icebreaker would we do? And once yeah, I said, not the traditional sort of stuff. And the best one we came back with was, let's tell you what we'll do. We've got 30 of them in a room, right? They have to dial their contact sender um, and uh, they can only sit down once they get through to uh, and speak to a real human being. And I said, that's brilliant. I love it. I says, but we've only got two days together. So, you know, uh, that might be one that might be one thing we get them to actually do. But ultimately, the, my one thing to anybody running an organisation, and I, I, um, I, I, I do genuinely believe this, is just do no harm. You know, if, if, if you do no harm, then... You know, there's very little people can come back and sort of have a go with you with. And ultimately, working in social housing, you don't join social housing to get mega rich around this. You join it because of its purpose or it's, you know, what the organization sort of provides. And when you think about what you can do working in a social housing organization, for me, it's probably up there. Um, you, know, but, you know, when you have a child, you know, you give somebody a house right? You enable them, you support them, and they turn it into a home. And what better gift can you give people than that? And I think, you know, keep that top of mind uh, and enjoy yourself. It's a brilliant sector to work in, um, and you'll not have a bad career. So perfect points to end on. Thank you, Ian. A couple of housekeeping points from me before I say thank you. Um, please, everybody who's listening, subscribe wherever you're listening, and ideally leave us some feedback. But I keep saying five-star only. We've only got five ratings on Spotify, but they're all five-star. So, you know, that's a good start for us. Um, on Apple Podcasts, someone's left a review saying, Wallace Innovation Chat, really interesting guests who are generally probed and prodded, well, maybe we do need HR, by the excellent hosts. Production values are top class, says Miss Star 79 That's got to be Katie's mum. But um, thanks for that. Uh, Simon Penny on LinkedIn said, uh, Let's Talk Ideas is a great inspiration to anyone working in the social and public sector. He was talking particularly about the Dan Minchin episode, uh, and he said he made him think about the point. He was talking especially about service design. Service design is 10% design. The other 90% is creating the conditions for design to happen, and I think that actually applies to a lot of what we've been talked about. Most of this is around 
looking at innovation in the long term, small amount of resources attached to it, very small, but the rest of the organisation creating the conditions for that to flourish. So thank you very much, Ian. It's been a delight. Uh, thanks very much for the invitation. And thanks ever so much for, for co-hosting Helen as well. No problem. Thanks for having me, Paul. And uh, good to see you again, Ian. If people do want to keep in touch with you on your travels, because obviously what your work is not just housing, it will appear to a variety of sectors. How should they follow you? Uh, probably the best stage is um, on LinkedIn, if they want some sort of uh, professional comments on there, but also our website and our YouTube channel as well. Great. Thanks again, both.